help. <laughs> I'd like you to take your Bibles tonight, find the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians tonight. Hey, Renee, or Evan, could you run upstairs and get my laptop, please? I'd appreciate that. For some reason, my iPad just decided to, to update itself and is sitting here staring at a blank screen with that lousy apple with a bite taken out of it, mocking God, and uh, just crawling along like it's not going to download. Ephesians chapter number 2. <clears throat> got a hot date, Steve? Oh, no. i just worried about him taking his time. Yeah, he's like, he's like this, like the, the walk in the park. You're your bird. <laughs> Thank you, son. He's my favorite fourth child. I'll let you know that right now. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's see if this works. This might be the devil fighting all the electronics tonight. This is why I should print these things out, amen? Now, let's see here. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter number 2. I'd like to read a very familiar portion of Scripture to you tonight. And, and, and kind of tonight and next Sunday night kind of go off on a topic I think is we don't hear about it too much but it is still a topic that's out there it's a doctrine <clears throat> that uh, I think can be dangerous uh, there's a lot of doctrines that are dangerous a lot of doctrines we don't believe in there is the reformed theology reformed theology is also another name for what we call Calvinism Calvinism is a teaching or a doctrine really started by Augustine, a Catholic priest, and then about six, eight hundred years later, John Calvin comes along, and John Calvin takes that doctrine out of the, out of, out of the scrap bucket and reworks it, and, and, and Calvinism basically teaches that God has basically planned everything. Everything has been ordained by God. God mapped out everything, and God even picked out and mapped out who's going to be saved. Now, God knows who's going to be saved, but this is the teaching that God picked you to be saved. And that means also that God left others to their own devices and to go off into eternity without Christ. But you've been, and that's called, they call it the doctrine of grace, that God picked you to be saved. Now, when you believe in Calvinism, Calvinism has a lot of children that go along with it, that kind of hang around with it. And one of those teachings is the teaching we, know, we call as Lordship salvation. Now, what is lordship salvation? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight and, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Now, sometimes people come to church and they want to argue with you. They want to discuss theology with you. They want to fight with you. They're not here to be a blessing. They want, they're here to fight. And such is the case from time to time around here. Nobody here tonight, by the way, so don't get nervous. But those things sometimes are helpful, and I appreciate it because sometimes they, what they do to me is help me to go back and start study and refresh myself and to to uh, sharpen the pencil, so to speak. You know, walk up to the pencil sharpener and get it going again. <laughs> and this way, I'm refreshed on, on whatever it is they're 
they want to discuss. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, kind of a launching point. He's, in verse number 8, he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Father, bless this time and this hour now. We pray, Lord, you'll speak to our hearts. Help us as we study and learn from Scripture that we would uh, understand the plain teaching of the Word of God and not read anything into the text that should not be there. We ask for your help, for your wisdom, and for your direction this time. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, and he makes this very familiar statement, verses that you should have memorized. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. The teaching of salvation is a doctrine that is fought over. Every group has a belief on how you get saved. Today is Eucharist Sunday. St. Stephen's had their mass. The priest stood up there. He took a piece of bread, prayed, and he crucified Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, in that wafer, it becomes the Eucharist. And in that Eucharist is the presence, the body of Jesus Christ. That cracker is the body of Jesus Christ. Then they took that body of Christ, they put it on a special plate, and with a canvas they marched up and down Kearney Avenue, parading Jesus up and down the streets of Kearney, letting everybody know that this is Jesus, Jesus is here, Jesus is is present with us. Now, my friend, that's not reality. That's not Bible. That's Catholicism, but it's not Bible. Jesus was not present in that wafer. He just wasn't. That was still a wafer. If you did a DNA test on that wafer, the DNA would prove that this is wheat and water and no human body is found in that cracker. It's just, it's just a cracker. But they think that when you eat that cracker, you are receiving Jesus Christ. That's why you don't ever ask a Catholic, have you received Christ as Savior? Because they'll tell you yes. Every time they go, they go to Mass, they are receiving Jesus Christ. They eat His body, and then they drink the wine. They are drinking His blood. The priest has the power to crucify Christ and serve Him to you. So you, a Catholic is actually eating and drinking Jesus Christ every single Mass. That's, and that's how you continue to have salvation, because you are eating Jesus every time you go to church. That's why they put that little plate under your chin when they serve you the wafer. This way, Jesus doesn't fall and hit the ground. He's protected there, and so they can, the priest can catch Jesus. Now, we may not agree with that. We don't agree with that. We think that's blasphemy. But that's their teaching of salvation and a part of belonging to the Roman Catholic Church. To them, salvation is found in the Roman Catholic Church. In order to have salvation, you must be part of the mother church. Every other church is a a, a runaway and and, and a rebellious child. They are the true church. They are the mother church. And everybody that gets saved must belong to them, must go through the Pope and the whole entire system. That's their theology. We don't believe that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, again, for by grace. God's grace is what saves sinners. And you're saved through faith. 
And that faith, again, is the faith that God gives you, and it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So we have salvation because we believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that, that, that belief, and by believing that, when we honestly believe that and we truly believe it, and we recognize that we're sinners and in need of that, God imparts to the believing sinner salvation. God makes that person a child of God. God takes away our sins and gives us his righteousness. We sang the song tonight, All That Thrills My Soul Is Jesus. And in the, he, he, the songwriter, I don't understand how, though my sins, red like crimson, can be whiter than the snow. Well, how is that possible? Because it's by God's grace and mercy that God does that. We have faith in the written word of God. <clears throat> so we accept Christ. We believe upon Christ. Uh, whatever way you want to say it, we've accepted Christ as Savior. Now, what has happened in Christianity is what is a phrase called easy believism. And if you hang around Christianity and study Christianity and listen to websites and people on the Internet, you'll hear this phrase, easy believism. And I've told you this story before, but uh, again, for the sake of the, of the message tonight, we'll simply say it again. We were out soul winning, and we had a, 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 a guy and a girl that were in our church for a short period of time. Um, and they were out soul winning with us, and Renee and, and this young lady were out soul winning, and the lady walked up to a, a guy in the street and asked him, do you believe... You're a sinner? And he goes, yeah. You believe Jesus died on the cross? He's like, yeah, I guess so. You believe he died for you? Yeah, I guess. You believe he rose from the grave? Excuse me? <coughs> Thank you. You believe he rose from the grave? Yeah. Well, then you're saved. And the guy's like, what? Okay. Well, my friend, the man's not saved. The man has basic knowledge of some Bible truth, but again, it's not the belief. He didn't... He's not believing scripturally. And to simply say, take it, guys, believe this, believe this, now let's pray a prayer. And again, that's, it's that magic phrase, let's pray a prayer. And I've known people who try to trick people into praying a prayer as if this is some magic words. When I was a boy, you know, you say magic words to open things. What was it, you know, oh, sesame, and all of a sudden the door will magically, we, so as kids, we'd be like, oh, sesame, trying to get some door open, and no door ever opened. Whether it's O sesame or, or O rye bread or, or, or O pumpernickel, nothing ever opened. You don't have magic words. Salvation is not saying a prayer. Salvation is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you pay attention into, in the New Testament, nobody gets saved in the same manner. Now, let me back up and explain that. Now, they're all saved by grace through faith, but the experience is never the same. Jesus never said, okay, now let's take our Bible and let's go to Romans chapter number 3, verse number 10. And let's look at verse number 323. And let's jump over to verse number 623. And let's go back to Romans 5, 8. And let's jump over to Romans 10, 13. It's never the same way. Everybody has a different experience. The thief on the cross versus Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus versus the woman at the well. The woman at the well versus Nicodemus. And on and on it goes. But they all have this one thing in common is that they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't find any of them praying an actual sinner's prayer and, and saying magic words. Now, do you believe in praying? Yes, I believe in praying. And I believe we get salvation because we ask. For the Bible says, for with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So there is the asking of it. If we don't ask, we don't get. And that's the way it is with a lot of things in life. You can stand there all day long if you don't ask. 
You don't get. You have to ask. We ask God. God, I want salvation. The thief on the cross asked for salvation. The Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, as Philip the evangelist was dealing with him, the Philip said, now do you believe these things? And he said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, well, now you can get baptized. And because he believed. Philip never said, okay, now let's bow our heads and pray this prayer. Again, I'm not opposed to that. But I, I, we have to be careful that people, well, I prayed a prayer and now I'm saved. Again, another story I've told before. I met a, a, a man who used to come to our church. A boy used to come to our church. He's a man now. But he said, I'm not going to your church anymore, Pastor Matt. I said, well, you haven't been coming in years. So I thought... I'm going to another church now. I said, well, great, where are you going? I'm going to such and such. I said, that's great. Did they preach the gospel? Oh, yeah, I got saved there last week. I said, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear you got saved. Tell me about it. Tell me how you got saved. I like to hear. I like to hear salvation stories, amen? By the way, if somebody asks me how I got saved, I don't get mad at them. Always be careful of somebody who gets mad when you ask them how they got saved. If they get mad, nine times out of ten, it's because they don't have anything to tell you because they never got saved. I can tell you my salvation story a thousand times all day long and never get tired of it because Jesus saved a, a sinner and transformed his life. So I said, tell me, how did you get saved? What happened? He said, well, the, me and the pastor sat down. The pastor talked with me and we prayed. And, and then we, this is his words now, I'm not making, we, we, we got so happy we danced around the building. I said, that's wonderful. I'm glad. I said, now tell me, what exactly did the pastor tell you before you guys broke into dance? Well, I, I really don't remember, but we danced around the building. I said, well, I don't know, was it the hucklebuck or the mashed potato? I said, that's what, I know you danced, you've told me that twice, but what did the preacher tell you? Well, I really don't remember. And then you got a question, did he really get saved? If all you can remember is dancing and not was actually led you to dance, then you got a problem. There's a problem with that. So again, why are you saved? Well, because we danced around the building. No. How do you know say because I prayed a prayer? Well, what did you pray? I really don't remember, but I prayed. Well, there's a problem. So we're dealing with this issue of easy believism where we tell people they're saved simply because we very quickly went through the plan of salvation with them and, and, and led them in a prayer, and now we told them, you're saved. And they're still like, what? Not really fully comprehending all that just happened in the last 40 seconds of their life. We must be careful in explaining the gospel, give a thorough explanation of the gospel, and, and making sure that the sinner is, understands it. I've heard soul-winning courses. I've been to soul-winning courses on a young man. And I've heard soul-winners say, listen, don't answer a lot of questions from the sinner. Just kind of tell them we'll get back to that and, and just go ahead and, and get to the plan of salvation. Oh, my friend, I've learned that people have questions. It's good to deal with those questions because you can't get to the person until the questions get removed out of the way. And then we can begin to work on a person's heart. And so they may have questions. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? That's a good question. And again, if they're genuine, they'll sit there for an hour or two hours with you in the discussion. But if they're like this, we almost done, then they're not interested in salvation. And there's no sense in you hurrying up to get to the sinner's prayer. 
because they're not there with you. They're just going to pray a prayer to get rid of you and that you'll go away and leave them alone. And then you wonder, why didn't they come to church? They got saved. They prayed a prayer. And I know people go out sowing. I led eight people to Jesus this afternoon. That's wonderful. Did those eight people ever come to church? No, but they're saved. Then God knows where they are. Well, really, are they saved? It's easy believism. And we have to be careful with easy believism. Now, again, is salvation easy? Yes. The Bible calls the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity to believe what Jesus Christ did. But before we can ever get to this simplicity, like Nicodemus, as we're studying, Nicodemus has not believed the simplicity of the gospel yet. He's listening to Jesus, and then later on in chapter 7, he's still listening to Jesus, and we don't find him getting saved or, 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 or saved till after the crucifixion of Jesus. It took that man a couple years before it all finally clicked in his head and he understood it and became a believer in Jesus Christ. But it's easy to believe. What we're warning you about is getting you to where you just do something so somebody says something and that you can basically put a, a, a notch on the chalkboard and say, I got another one. And again, I never kept track of those things, by the way. I always get nervous from people who always keep track of how many people they led to Jesus because I don't know how many people I led to Jesus. I've talked to a lot of people, prayed with a lot of people. How many were genuine? I don't know. Only God knows that. But I've given the gospel to, to thousands of people in my time. And I've led a bunch to pray and, and, and made sure. Are you sure you understand? Are you, 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 you got this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you want to be saved. You understand what it means to be saved now? Yes, I understand. Okay, well, let's, well, you need to ask Christ. You need to believe and ask Christ to be your Savior. And they prayed. Well, did they really get saved? I don't know. You know them by their fruits. You know them by, by what they do in life. Now, with those two things, with salvation, and then with the danger of what is easy believism, and whenever there's one extreme, there's a tendency to swing, the pendulum swings to the other extreme. Some people don't realize that you can actually be in the middle and just be on the middle of things. So some people want to swing over here to easy believism and, they're, and, they're, and they've led 10 people to Jesus yesterday simply by going A, B, C, D, pray. Then we swing over here to the group that's known as Lordship Salvation. And the advocates of Lordship Salvation point to Jesus' repeated warnings to the religious hypocrites of his day as proof that simply agreeing to a spiritual fact does not save a person. Now again, what does the Bible say about belief? It says, who believes and trembles? But the devil. The devil believes the gospel, but he's not saved, and he trembles. He's terrified of what God can do. And we all agree that there must be a change in a person's life. Salvation brings a change. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. We're new creatures. We're a new creation. We've been changed by the grace of Almighty God. And we, we all believe that. I would agree with that. I have no problems with that. I have problems when people don't become new creatures and they still continue to be the same person. And there's been no drastic change in life and no love for the things of God, no desire for the things of God. Look in your Bible, and you can not, we're not going to come back to Ephesians. Look at Luke chapter number 14. I want to show you some examples of 
proof texts that they use for lordship salvation. And lordship salvation means in order to be saved that Jesus Christ has to be not only your savior, but he has to be your Lord. And by Lord, they mean that you have to submit to the will of God and be doing the will of God. He's my Lord. And what, and, and what do we learn about a Lord is somebody you submit yourself to. When the king said something, you didn't say, you know what, king, I don't think I'm going to do that. No, the, you did what the king told you to do or else. The Lord. We know God, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the fact of the matter is Jesus Christ is Lord to everybody, whether they believe on him or not. Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing's going to change that. Well, I don't believe that. That still doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Every sinner, every human being who ever lived on planet Earth someday will kneel before Christ and say, You are Lord. But I denied that. But you will admit it one day. You will admit it one day. In Luke chapter number 14. Luke chapter number 14 and verse number 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now again, there we see this phrase again. Who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be not disciple. If we jump over to verse number 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Now, I would contend with you, and I'll, I'll, I'll clear this up in a minute. In the same passage, Jesus speaks of counting the cost. Elsewhere, he stresses total commitment. He says that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is, is fit for the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter number 9 and verse number 26. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that eternal life is a narrow path and only a few will find it. In contrast, easy believe him. Easy believism seeks to broaden the path so that anyone who has a profession of faith can enter. Jesus says that every good tree does what? It bears good fruit. In contrast, easy believism says that a tree can still uh, be good and bear nothing but bad fruit. <laughs> Jesus says that many who say, Lord, Lord, will not enter into the kingdom of God. In contrast to easy believism, the teacher saying, Lord, Lord, is good enough. So what? When we think about this, and we look at these verses here where Jesus says, you know what, if, 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 you, don't, if you don't count the cost, if you put your hands to the plow and, you, and, and you're looking back at the world, you're not, you can't be my disciple. And I would say there's a difference between salvation and discipleship. They're two different things. Salvation is salvation. Discipleship is being a student. It's a total commitment to the things of God. Then what do the disciples do? They, what do they do when they... How did they become a disciple? They were saved, right? They believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They were already saved, but then they did what? They forsook their nets and gave up all and followed him. Now they're on the path to discipleship, but salvation already had taken place in their life. Now they are committing themselves to this life, to this, uh, I'm serving Christ with, with my life. Now, what is necessary... What is a necessary condition for salvation? The necessary condition for salvation is faith in Christ as Savior. 
That's it. Salvation depends upon my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. The thief on the cross, although he called him Lord, did not have time to commit his life to Christ. He was going to die in a few hours. It is true that some believers dedicate their lives to the Lord at the moment of salvation. The Apostle Paul is a fine example of this. He said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And he committed his life to the cause of Christ. With most believers, dedication takes place after a fuller understanding of their spiritual responsibility. When I was born, I didn't know anything. The only thing I knew is that I was hungry, I got tired, I was hot, I was cold, and my pamper was full. That's all I knew in life. And mom took care of everything else until I got to an age where I began to understand and reason and think. And, and even then, you know, you go through your adolescence and then teenage years and finally as an adult and you start to reason, think, and do things on your own. But when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior as a 10-year-old boy, I was asking Jesus to be my Savior. I didn't understand fully lordship. I did not understand that uh, uh, the idea of submitting my will to his will and, and making him Lord of my life. All I knew was I was a sinner going to hell, and Jesus said he would save me if I asked him. And so I prayed, and I asked Jesus, be my Savior. I'm trusting you to be my Savior. And I believed upon Jesus Christ. Again, with believers, it takes time in their spiritual development to understand their spiritual responsibilities. When you got saved, did you fully understand the virgin birth? Did you fully understand the deity of Christ? Did you fully understand all of those key doctrines? No. You had one doctrine that you learned. You were a bad sinner and Jesus was a great savior. And Jesus died for you and, 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 he, and he paid your sin debt. And if you... Uh, understood your sinfulness and accepted Jesus, you'd be made a child of God. That's basically all you know. The preaching, okay, now let me spend the next 10 weeks going through the necessity for the virgin birth and what that really fully means. I didn't hear about the virgin birth until much years later in my life because I'm 10 years old. You say, well, you're 10 years old. Listen, again, if we're going to go this route, can a child be saved? Of course they can because Jesus says what? That it's simple enough that for children to believe. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of God. You're going to find children in heaven. They may be full adults, but they died as children. They believed upon Christ and entered the kingdom of heaven. Ideally, every saint should recognize the lordship of Christ from the moment of salvation. But again, but there's a difference between being a saint or a, uh, or, and a disciple. It costs absolutely nothing to be a Christian because it's been paid for. I am receiving a gift that God gave me. Salvation is a gift that God wants to give me, and I receive that gift. It costs me nothing. The minute I say, what do I have to do, then it no longer is a gift and it becomes works, and I am doing something to have a part in that, that gift that I am receiving. My kids gave me this watch for Christmas a few years ago. What did I do to get it? 
Nothing. I opened my present on Sunday morning. There it was. I got this Christmas present. And that's the gift. They didn't say, Dad, now here's what you got to do, Dad, in order to get the watch. It didn't happen that way. So it cost you nothing to be a Christian. But, my friend, it cost everything to be a disciple. In Luke 14, the Lord distinguishes between salvation and discipleship while teaching two parables side by side. Look at Luke chapter 14 and verse number 16. Luke 14, 16. A certain man bade a great supper and bade many. And he sent this servant at supper times to them, saying, They were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, must needs go see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, therefore cannot come. Out of those three excuses, I never understood the third one. What's that got to do with not going to the party? Anybody who gets married is, is anxious to show off how pretty their wife is. When I first got married, a guy asked me, people ask you stupid questions. You got married? I said, yeah, I did. Is your wife pretty? I'm like, what kind of stupid question is that? What am I supposed to say? No, she's ugly. You know, what am I supposed to say? Of course she's pretty. So why this guy did not come simply because he had a wife? Again, excuses, my friend, they're just excuses. They really are. Next time you don't want to come to church because you're just backslidden, just call, Pastor, I can't come to church. Why? I don't like hot dogs and hang up. You say, what's hot dogs got to do? Well, one excuse is as good as another. All right? It's just, just, just excuses. And I prefer that one much better anyway than you making something up. Well, you see, I can't come to church because uh, locusts attacked my house last night and the power's out and I couldn't get shaved and go, okay. You won't believe the excuses we've, I've had in my lifetime from people. Verse 21, So the servant came and showed his lord these things. Then his master of the house, being angry, said to servants, Go out quickly in the streets and lanes of the city and bring hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done that thou hast commanded, yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those which were, men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Again, he related this parable of the great supper in which the entrance was free and unrestricted for all who followed the invitation. We all like to get invited to something, especially when you're told it's free. Hey, this is free. Years ago, before wedding crashers became a thing, Rejoice's dad, he goes, you know, we were at a wedding one time, he goes, you know, Matt, you ever notice you can just kind of walk into these things, nobody knows who you are, you can just walk into the cocktail hour and just, and, and just chow down on all this free food here. I said, I never thought about that. He goes, yeah. He goes, how many people do you know here? I go, just one or three, four, five, seven people. Yeah, we don't know the rest of these people. How do we know these people just didn't walk in off the street? So next time you see a wedding venue somewhere, one of these fancy places, just walk in. And just walk in and start, you know, eating things. You know, grab a piece of shrimp, get over there, grab a pig in a blanket, and then grab a little rib. You can, you, they don't know who you are. Yes, the bride looks very beautiful. And, and just walk out after you're full. They, don't do that, but... <laughs> that's what Jim Anderson <laughs> he, he had it all mapped out in his head <laughs> and how, he's gonna, how we're going to do that but I want you to notice in this parable here they were all invited he didn't say now here's what they got to do he didn't throw anything extra on there the invitation was given let them come and my friend salvation is come to the you're invited 
You're invited to attend. Then he gives this verse 25, the, the cost of discipleship that we talked about. If any man come, in verse 26, and hate not his father and his mother, his wife, and have children, brethren, and sister, and yea, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now again, he's not talking about, I don't, you're not encouraged to hate anybody, but it's the fact that you ought to love Jesus more than anybody else. That everybody else comes a distant second place. That I'm putting Christ first in all things. My life is dedicated to Christ right now. That's discipleship. So again, coming to the party and getting the free meal is one thing. That's salvation. But being a disciple is something else indeed. Being a Christian means following an invitation. Being a disciple means forsaking all. And to confuse these two aspects of the Christian life is to confound the grace of God and, and the works of man. To ignore the difference between salvation and sanctification, the gospel of grace, again, is scriptural. The gospel that adds works of man to salvation is a counterfeit gospel. If it was ever necessary for believers to rightly divide the word of truth, it's in this area. And, and understanding the difference in these areas. When I got saved, I did not submit my will. Let me do whatever Jesus wants me to do. No. That came later in my life. In fact, much later. I was 10 years old. Eight years later, I was 18 years old when I surrendered my life. I told Jesus, oh, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And gave my life to Christ. I began the road of discipleship. And it was a difficult school. It's a hard school. It's a painful school. You'll lose friends. You'll lose family members. People don't want to be around you. And, and people will forsake you. You can be lonely from time to time because you've chosen to be a disciple. You put your hands on that plow and, and you're not looking back. You're counting the cost. What's this going to cost me? Well, it may cost me everything to be this disciple of Christ. So when somebody says that you have to submit and Jesus Christ has to be Lord and Savior, now we use that phrase, by the way, quite a bit, and sometimes we say it without thinking about what exactly it is we're putting in there. Do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes, I believe He's Lord and Savior. Okay, now, but to, to those who believe in Lordship salvation, they are saying you can't be saved unless you make Jesus Christ Lord and you start this road of discipleship and begin to... to uh, Forsake all, and then you can have salvation. I think you're adding works as being now implied into your salvation. Now I'm doing something because I'm forsaking. I am giving up. I am walking away from something. It's no longer the free gift that God has given to me. Now it's, hey, here's a free gift. Now here's what you have to do, and you better walk this way or else. Okay, and we walk down that road or else we lose the gift. Now, we have a lot of compelling proofs in our Bible against lordship salvation. Let me ask you, as you read your Bible, are there a lot of great, sold-out, separated believers in our Bible? Go like this. Yes, there's a lot of them. Are there a lot of backslidden, good-for-nothing, lousy Christians in your Bible? Go like this. Can anybody think of one church in particular? The Corinthian church. If ever there was a lousy church, it was the Corinthian church. 
because anything that they could do wrong, they were doing wrong. In fact, if we take salvation as a whole, and remember, salvation has always been the same, it's never changed. Who is probably the worst Christian or worst believer, if we can use that language in our Bible? Would it not be Lot? Would Lot not be the worst believer that we know of? Now, when we get to heaven, hey, you, Lot, boy, you. No, we're all there by grace, by the way. Look at your Bible at 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Now, Lot was a man who moved his family into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And was there ever two horrible cities? Nothing is ever worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. San Francisco is bad, but it's no Sodom and Gomorrah, as you'll read next week in the newsletter. New York is bad. Everybody where these pride parades are. They're bad. But they're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot moved his family in there, and he had sons and daughters, and they all died in that city except two daughters. His wife died when she turned back and became a pillar of salt because she disobeyed the word of God. But God pulled Lot out. Now, why did God pull Lot out of Sodom? Because Abraham prayed, Lord, don't destroy the city if you find 50 and 40, and then worked him all the way down to 10. And God said, I will not destroy the city if I find ten righteous people in the city. Or in other words, I will not destroy it if I find ten saved people in that city. And he's probably thinking, well, there's Lot, there's his wife, there's his kids, and maybe he got a couple of neighbors saved. There's got to be ten people. But at the end of the day, how many people were saved in, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah? Just one. And so what did God do to that one man? He pulled him out. And then God destroyed the cities. And we think, how bad was Lot? Now listen, what did Lot take with him when he left Sodom? If, if you know the, the city's going to be blown up, is, is, is packing alcohol away the first thing on your list to bring with you? Make sure we bring the booze. Okay, God's going to blow up the city. We've got to get out of here. Let's pack the booze. It's not my thoughts. It was Lot's. What do we mean? Well, because when his two daughters thought that this whole world was destroyed, they got their father drunk and committed incest with their father. It's a despicable, horrible story. And you have to think, how depraved were those two girls that that thought even entered their head? Where did they get that from? They got it from the city itself because it must have been a common practice in the city of Sodom in order for them to engage in such an activity. It's horrible. It's despicable. It's absolutely wicked. That's why when God destroyed it, that's some of the sin that was going on in that city. So Lot, when we look at him, we study his life. In verse chapter number 2, verse number of Second Peter, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to the chains of darkness and reserved them to judgment, and He spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those after should live godly. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah should be examples to every American city 
and to every ballpark in this country that's having Pride Night. But notice verse 7. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Verse 8, very important. You ought to mark it. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Notice what, now Lot stayed there. He never should have stayed there. He's the nephew of Abraham. He couldn't have had a finer, godlier example than his uncle. But yet he rejected that and ended up in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Bible calls him what kind of man? A righteous man. When we see Lot in Sodom, does he look righteous? Is he practicing righteousness? No, he's kind of, you look at him and say, this, you're, and by the way, when he goes to grab his other daughters who are married and drag them out of the city, what do they say to their father? Oh, now all of a sudden you're a Christian? All of a sudden now you're a believer? Now all of a sudden you know God? He had no testimony with them. They did not believe anything he said. And so his daughters and, and their husbands and possibly children stayed inside him because they would not listen to their father. And yet God calls him what type of man? Righteous man. Now he is righteous in the sight of God because of salvation. But he was not righteous in the eyes of men. Men looked upon him, you're just like us. You're no different than us. Now all of a sudden you're Mr. Righteousness? But God saw him because God saw him through Christ. Because he was a believer. But So when you get to heaven, you know who you're going to meet? You're going to meet Lot. Now did Lot practice lordship salvation? Of course not. It's not there. He didn't make Jesus Lord of his life. He didn't make God Lord of his life. He made sin and the, the, the quest for power and fame and prestige his goal in life. And he lost everything when it was all said and done. So that's an example. That's one example tonight. And we'll close with that of one man who's an, an example of an uncommitted believer. He's uncommitted. Man, salvation, again, is a, is a gift that God gives. Should every Christian be a disciple? Every Christian ought to be a disciple. You grow, you want to grow and, and, and commit yourself to Christ. And you can do that and still maintain your job and, and maintain your schooling and, and maintain everything else but being a disciple. I want to serve Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to marry somebody who, who wants to love Jesus. And I want my kids to love Jesus. I'm going to, we're committing ourselves to this because nothing else is important. I, I finally see and understand it that everything else is vanity and a waste of time. I don't care what record you set in any sporting, somebody's going to come along and break them. And listen, 500 years from now, nobody's going to say, you know what, Ty Cobb holds the record. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care who holds the record for the most com complete passes in the NFL. No one's going to care. They won't even think about it. Nothing will matter. All that will matter is our commitment to Christ. But we have examples of uncommitted believers all throughout our Bible, which we will list next Sunday night, Lord willing, if Jesus lets and allows, we'll look at them. But we must not confuse salvation with discipleship. Those are two different things. Salvation is a gift. Discipleship is a commitment to, to serving and, 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 and using that gift that God has given to us. Now again... 
we be careful of easy believism. But we also have to be careful of those who put a price tag or a weight upon somebody that God did not put there. Learn to divide these things. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for Jesus who loved us and died on Calvary's cross for us. Now, Lord, bless this time, bless this hour. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have an invitation this evening if God spoke to your heart.